<laughs> yeah. Well, I, I use Riverside as well too, for my own pod. Um, and it's yeah. always hit or miss. Like sometimes you end up getting it that yeah, yeah. like, okay, That's 99% true. is uploading properly. But we had, mm. um, I mean, I had Lorraine from Bitcoin Data. Um, it's an mm-hmm. NGO. Mm. Uh, and I mean, she was doing it on site there. And she's in the middle of Kenya, nowhere, right? Uh, yep. It was a yeah. nightmare getting that recording through. Um, I think our videographer was about ready to quit by the end <laughs> of editing that video. But we got through it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I uh, I remember who, who was it that we had? Was it Mary Marsman? She's like yeah, a, that was difficult. Yeah, like Ian was like, okay, I'll, I'll go now, yeah. and I sat there like, okay, I can chat with another hour with you if you, if you like. So I had to sit there and wait until it uploaded. But you know, it, it, part, it is what it is. part of the hustle, exactly. And uh, without wasting any more time, that either stays or doesn't in the recording, um, I want to introduce Patrick Laurie today. You are the CEO of Samara Asset Group, and you're going to give us an insight today into Bitcoin with the big boys, if that's a good title. I guess if you want to do that. I can make a title of a good book, Bitcoin for big boys. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. How, how has your day been so far, Pat? Uh, it's been good. Um, I mean, I'm traveling this week. I'm here uh, in New York. Um, one of my larger investors, Christian Angemeyer, he hosts what he calls the Angemeyer Policy and Innovation Forum. Um, And he usually does this in parallel with some of the larger uh, political events throughout the year. So he always does this at the Munich Security Council. Um, as a sidetrack for any politician that would like to come out and have more candid conversations than, for instance, what they can do on the floor of the MSC. Or, for instance, right now we're at the UN, where it's kind of just a uh, backroom conversation. We all get together, uh, sit down, discuss policy. Um, Some big political hitters come in and they're, again, able just to speak more candidly, more like rational, reasonable human beings. It's actually, to a certain extent, a bit of a comfort to see in person. Uh, Naturally, Mm -hmm. it's all Chatham House rules. Nothing is ever allowed to be repeated. Um, But it kind of helps you understand a little bit more of the inner workings of these types of organizations. Because, I mean, obviously, what the public sees is not how these organizations actually work. It's just a facade for public purposes for goodwill purposes or whatever. Uh, It's in these types of back rooms that the movers and shakers really get stuff done, which I mean is no different than if you go to a finance conference. I mean, when Larry Fink goes up on stage and talks about, I don't know, whatever bullshit that he thinks Bitcoin is a Ponzi scam. Mm. It's a, it's a complete scheme. It's used only by money launderers. And then he goes in the back room and says, Oh God, I can't wait to get this Bitcoin ETF file. We're going to be the first in the world to do it because we paid off Gary Gensler. Right. Um, right. (laughs) It's those type of backroom conversations. Yeah. You have to be in a room where it happens, right? To really truly understand what's going on behind closed doors. Because that's all it is at the end of the day, isn't it? It's just people in a room getting together and planning and formulating something. But really the public facade is very much different. Exactly. But it's, and it's not just how politics work. It's not just how like big incumbents or institutions work. I mean, I mean, I remember when I was a kid and I was going through high school, going to college, like my father always used to tell me like your value, your merit is only what your network is. And while I think that's a lot of advice that any father, any mother gives to their kids. And obviously a lot of, uh, professionals will say that to underlings as they rise through whatever organization, you don't really understand that 
I think until you start making that network, until you start making those connections and see how the world works yourself. Like for instance, I remember when I was a kid, I mean, I was coming out of uh, University of Delaware. I had a uh, degree in bachelor's in uh, bachelor's in accounting and finance. I was going to work at PwC. I had my 50k a year salary. Um, I was on top of the goddamn world, right? Uh, because I was going to be on the partner track, and I studied so hard, mm. got A's and B's in college. I was at PwC. I was made for life. And then you get there and it's just like a ton of bricks fucking hitting you at that first busy season. You're working 80, 100 hour work weeks, which granted, I do not regret. I learned more at PwC probably than I did at any other point in my professional career. Um, but it completely exposes that everything that you learn from an educational standpoint, everything you learn academically is, to be honest, just completely fucking worthless. The only thing that a college degree mm. is good for anymore is to prove to employers, prove to anybody else that this is somebody that can be indoctrinated, that can be trained and can actually that they're not a complete fucking idiot. Right. Uh, it really becomes true later mm. on that. Well, maybe from a business standpoint, like if you're going and studying rocket science, OK, completely different conversation. Right. Um, if you're studying natural sciences, sure, completely different conversation. But generally speaking, mm. if you're working in business, finance or whatever it may be, your value – like you have to have that base knowledge. Don't get me wrong. You have to understand accounting principles, finance principles. You have to understand how to calculate IRR and Excel, right? But outside of that, your value really only is your network. And that network, mm. working in those back rooms, having those conversations, that's where the world changes, do you know, so much of what you said just reminds me of the conversation we had with Daniel Prince um, from the Once Bitten podcast. Um, and he was talking very much about sort of education and that, that it's, it's a marker of how um, pliable you are to, you know, coercion. And um, it shouldn't be that way. It certainly seemingly has become that way. Um, I mean, unfortunately, schools have become pushing propagandic agenda one way or another. I mean, I went to 12 years of Catholic school. Um, don't know how I made it out of that alive. Uh, <laughs> Me too, how did man. You kill well, anybody? <laughs> Patrick, that, that, mate, let's just sit here for the rest of the time and just trauma bond over going to a Roman <laughs> Catholic <laughs> educational system. So you but, know that I'm actually yeah. naturally left-handed, um, but I have to write right-handed now oh, because being left-handed is yeah. the devil. Um, the only thing yeah, I do natural yeah. right-handed is uh, well, now I write right-handed, obviously. Uh, but the only thing I naturally... I I'm so glad you said I write right-handed. I was thinking about something else. Ah, no, God. <laughs> <laughs> you just want to trust you to bring um, this... Mate, this conversation I'm the youngest so one well. on this call. That's okay. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, so the only thing I naturally do right-handed is throw a baseball and golf. I play mm. hockey and lacrosse left-handed. Um, I started writing left-handed, but I had Sister Hope. And Sister Hope had a yardstick that oh, she gosh. beat the hell out of my left hand and was only allowed to write right-handed in first, second grade. <laughs> yeah, you're bringing me right back to the good old days now. <laughs> the sisters are like, This went from a podcast else. to a therapy session. And how did that work? It did, yeah. Yeah, welcome to uh, therapy at Rabbit Hole Stories. Yeah. <laughs> New format for a show right there. Oh, uh, gosh. But the, the clue sort of in the title with us, uh, we obviously usually start with the rabbit hole stories of our guests. And I'm curious to hear yours, Pat, because yeah. it, it's really atypical sort of where you ended up for like the normal Bitcoiners. Yeah. So how did you get started discovering Bitcoin and ending up where you are now? So, I mean, this kind of hit me in, I would say, two phases. So the first phase, I mean, it's 
it actually goes back to BWC, right? So, I mean, I had my coming out of college 50K a year salary. I thought I was going to retire on that one day, right? Um, I thought it was more money than God. But guess what? I got a $500 Christmas bonus that year. It was my first holiday bonus. I was on top of the world. I was going to go out and buy uh, two or three suits from uh, Joseph A. Banks because you could buy one, get three free or whatever bullshit they were promoting at the time. Uh, but I actually had a friend that worked in the tech department. And this was, mind you, back in, oh God, 2011, 2012. And he was like, honestly, just put the $500 on Bitcoin. I was like, when the hell is Bitcoin? He's like, just put $500 on it. He showed me how much money he had made on it recently. I guess Bitcoin was probably somewhere around like, what, I don't know, $100 or $200, I guess, at the time. And I did. And wouldn't you know it, come January, I had about $100, uh, just 80%, just gone, right? So I was like, okay, <laughs> fuck this bullshit, I'm out. So like, this just doesn't make any goddamn sense. So now you fast forward a couple of years. Now, coming out of PwC, I went and uh, started working in private equity, uh, worked with a group called Grand Partners. It's a small PE shop. We had about one five B investing in late stage uh, manufacturing companies. Um, this was maybe 2014, 2015 or so, I suppose. And it's then that I met my now uh, German wife. And I mean, we started dating, got engaged. I made a joke to her that she was only marrying me for the green card. And I severely underestimated how stubborn German women are. So lo and behold, I have a blue card now. Um, so I got dragged off to Germany kicking and screaming about eight or nine years ago. Uh, granted, I've absolutely loved my time uh, in Europe. I've loved my time in Germany. I've had so many more professional opportunities abroad than I think I ever would have had in the United States. Um, it might just be because I talk very quickly and come across as confident in the bullshit that I say, but hey, neither here nor there. Anyways, um, make it over to Germany. And I did an MBA at the uh, Frankfurt School of Finance and Management. And as a part of that MBA, uh, they encouraged you to go out and find like an internship, work as a like, you don't call them an internship in Germany. It's a VAC student or something like that. Yeah. So I went out, did this working student thing, and I ended up getting a job with the Deutsche Börse, uh, the, German venture, uh, the German stock market operator. And I was specifically working on the venture capital team there because unbeknownst to me, uh, foolish me, idiot American me, thinking that, oh yeah, I have experience working in private equity in America, I'll easily get a private equity job in Germany. Lo and behold, you apparently need to know German to work in German private equity, or rather, no, I should say that you either need to work in uh, need to know German or Chinese, uh, because it's all Chinese money buying all the German Mittelstand companies, right? I don't know either. Uh, I think I was the only kid in my uh, MBA class that was fluent in one language. There were even two other Americans, and they were fluent in like two or three languages each. And no, I still have not yet learned German. Um, so anyways, I had to do a bit of a career pivot away from PE and over towards venture capital, just because typically speaking, everywhere in the world, VC is largely done in English. Um, like you might have localized mm -hmm. pockets for sure, but if you want to scale the company, if you want to be investing and help bring a company on an international uh, perspective and get the returns, the outsized returns that VC fund managers need, it's all done in English. That's the only way to scale a business internationally, right? So started at the Deutsche Börse, and we had five pillars of technology that we were investing in, one of which was blockchain and DLT. And mind you, this was 2015 or so, I would say, um, or maybe 2016, I forget exactly, 2015, 2016. So blockchain and DLT were a part of the investment thesis 
all the way back then of the Deutsche Börse, just because internally we could even see how disruptive uh, blockchain would be for capital market formation. And this is where just working with a couple of companies, I mean, I remember one of the first ones I met uh, was a group called Funderbeam. And they're still around. I don't know if they've really gone anywhere, um, but Funderbeam had created tokenized assets on top of Ethereum, which back in 2015, 2016 was just a revolutionary concept, fully formed stock certificates issued on Ethereum. And I was like, holy shit, this is incredible. You could have anybody anywhere in the world connect to the Ethereum blockchain. And mind you, there wasn't even really wallets back then, right? But you could connect to the blockchain and you can transact in registered equities, registered securities on top of Ethereum. So I started really going down the rabbit hole because I developed a conviction very, very early on that it would be inevitable that every asset on earth, every equity, debt, derivative, parcel of uh, land, bar of gold, it would be tokenized on a blockchain. It was just so stupidly self-evident to me that that was the inevitability of capital markets. I just went all in on it. So that's where I left the Borza and founded um, Iconic at the time. We actually called it Iconic Lab. It ended up becoming Iconic Funds, and then we had Iconic Advisory, and then we just rebranded the whole thing earlier this year to Deutsche Digital Assets. Uh, but that actually started as an early stage um, blockchain crypto investor. And we invested in a couple of ICOs. We invested in equities of a couple of companies building in the crypto space. During crypto winter, we pivoted that towards being a asset management group. Um, so we went away from the VC side of things just because the team's experience was more from traditional finance. So that's where later on we built the ETPs and the index funds and all that fun stuff. But for me, my rabbit hole into crypto was really a falling in love with the idea of tokenization. Now, from there, outside of the companies that I've built and worked with, uh, me being just fundamentally a libertarian. Like I believe government should be as limitedly involved in people's lives as humanly possible. I believe people should live and let live. I don't see any reason why they can't, right? Um, certain people disagree with that entirely, but neither here nor there. But for me, discovering tokenization and then coming into the space understanding how the technology works at a fundamental level, and then discovering Bitcoin. For me, everything then became about Bitcoin. Um, not that I'm a Bitcoin maximalist by any stretch of the imagination. I do see value in Ethereum and some of the other layer ones. And I am, again, a huge proponent of tokenization, not tokenization the way crypto has gone about it. Um, I mean, we created ICOs, wonderful capital formation tool, we just bastardize it. We created NFTs. Okay, wonderful content generation platform. And then we turned it into fucking monkeys. Um, <laughs> so for me, it really became more and more about Bitcoin, especially as we now see Bitcoin. I mean, Bitcoin is the only censorship resistant money we have. Uh, for me, it is the world's best form of hard money. It's the most perfective currency that humanity has ever conceptually created before. Um and then uh, you start to see all the scalability aspects being built around it. And now we're even having conversations around functionality, tokenization on top of Bitcoin. I think we're now just at the precipice of what Bitcoin can and should become. And while a lot of people will say, OK, you know what? Bitcoin is digital gold, which is just a clever marketing pivot. I think that worked at the time in 2020 because we knew inflation was coming. And that makes sense. People need a very simplistic message to understand something. But 
I mean, for me, just calling Bitcoin digital gold sells it infinitely short of what it actually is. And I think even calling Bitcoin hard money, the world's hardest form of money, even to a certain extent sells Bitcoin short of what it is. Because while, okay, Bitcoin, I mean, Bitcoin, if we look at the blockchain trilemma, um, it perfected decentralization and it perfected security or as perfect as you can create something to be. It's missing the scalability. Well, OK, there's layer twos, lightning and a handful of others that as they continue to roll out, scalability is becoming much more solved. Right. But the only thing that it's missing then is uh, functionality, utility. It's missing Turing complete mm -hmm. smart contracts. Right. Which Ethereum and a whole bunch of other layer ones have. And there's a couple platforms out there that are working to solve this. You have what uh, the guys over at Rootstacks, you have RGB um, backed by Bitfinex. You have, I mean, even a portfolio company of ours, Topple, um, has been working on this for some time that they're going to hopefully roll out next year. Uh, if you're able to build that functionality on top of the perfected triangle of Bitcoin Lightning, and then you add functionality around it, Bitcoin goes from becoming a currency, it goes from becoming the world's hardest form of money and a viable alternative as a global reserve currency. It now becomes, because tokenization is enabled on top of it, it becomes the trustless, it becomes the single trustless ledger system of all financial transactions on earth, full stop. And that's where I see Bitcoin going. That's what Bitcoin is to me. I know it's many different things to many others, but that's basically my rabbit hole story, I guess. I've gone from losing $500 on Bitcoin in my Christmas bonus to I believe Bitcoin can and will be the de facto ledger system of an inclusive global financial ecosystem. First of all, I would say that you had no chance against your German wife to um, no. do what. I mean, so. German women are just so <laughs> stubborn. <laughs> Second of all, when you were talking and knowing that you're in asset, asset, asset management, um, I was wondering how much of a hard sell Bitcoin is and what is the what are the obstacles or hurdles that we need to overcome as Bitcoiners within the ecosystem mm -hmm. to make the message a little bit more clearer for people to understand um, so this the, is, the benefits of Bitcoin? So from a, is Bitcoin a hard pitch? No. I think asset managers, I think financial institutions, I think everybody generally gets it now. If you had asked me that five years ago, uh, when I had first started Iconic, um, it was impossible. Uh, everyone at the time thought Bitcoin was just a money laundering scheme. And granted, back then we were just coming out of uh, the Silk Road and all of that stuff. So a good portion of Bitcoin was used for drug trafficking and everything back then. Nowadays, it's less than 1%. Uh, verifiable transactions are tied to illicit activities as opposed to what, 98, 99% of dollars in circulation have cocaine on them. I mean, come on, hypocrisy at its finest. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it, it, that narrative doesn't work anymore. And coming out of the last having coupled with, I don't want to call it COVID because it wasn't COVID. It was our government's foolish and irresponsible and unconstitutional response to how to address the theoretical COVID plan. Uh, I almost said pandemic, but pandemic. Um I mean, whoops. That's what you call a Freudian uh, slip, right? Nah, just keep that one in. Fuck it. Um, so the, gov the government's <laughs> response to it, uh, people find it, it clicked for everybody. Okay, this digital gold mantra, this digital gold narrative pivot away from being that decentralized cash to digital gold, it made sense to everybody. 
When you compound that with the smart contract functionality um, that was enabling DeFi on top of Ethereum, I mean, those two factors or three factors, Bitcoin, government response to COVID, DeFi, that's what led to the last crypto uh, tidal wave. Now, nobody institutionally, I think, is necessarily convinced of DeFi, Ethereum and the other platforms. I do think they are convinced of the merits of tokenization, not necessarily what is currently built in crypto per se, but everybody's now convinced of Bitcoin. Maybe not convinced the same way that I am, that Bitcoin can become not just a viable alternative reserve currency and even more so the digital global ledger system, um, but they are convinced of elements of the value drivers behind Bitcoin. And when you couple that with the branding that Bitcoin has itself, I mean, it is the it's actually technically not the first cryptocurrency, but it's the first cryptocurrency that really kind of made yeah. waves. Um, and it has become a verifiable and accepted medium of transaction for large amounts. That's where I do think you're going to start to see a lot more institutions embrace it. Um, once we get over the theoretical regulatory and compliance hurdle, because that's largely been the issue thus far. Um, so, for instance, when we have these conversations around a Bitcoin ETF, uh, why don't we? Ha why why do we need a Bitcoin ETF? Anybody can own Bitcoin. That's not how institutions work. Um, if you're a large financial institution, to a certain extent, your business model isn't necessarily to generate money. I mean. Of course, it is. You want to re return uh, value to your shareholders. You want to service your clients and make money off of servicing your clients. I mean, that, that that's self-evident. Um, but you also have to completely de-risk yourself. You have to defer as much risk as possible to intermediaries. You have to defer that liability mm -hmm. of... God forbid something goes wrong. And again, this is this is maybe more middle management and upper management at these institutions, not the chief execs. Um, but regardless, they have to defer that liability. So well, what, what theoretically creates that individual that really is just making a couple hundred K a year working on Wall Street? Uh, what, 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 what makes him liable? Well, OK, if he has a cold storage wallet and he fucks up and the Bitcoin's gone and it's 10 millions of dollars for personal clients of his through JP Morgan, that's a huge scandal, huge fraud, right? That guy's probably going to jail because they'll allege that he stole the Bitcoin, right? Even if we can prove that it didn't happen. Well, yeah. it depends if you, if you, if you like bribed politicians, then you just get a weird hat. Exactly. Right. You can game at your home. Exactly. But if that individual can take 10 million of his client's money, and put it in a Bitcoin ETF. And now he defers the risk of the management of that Bitcoin to the ETF, who then defers the risk of the management of that Bitcoin to a Coinbase or a regulated custodian, who then defers the risk of the Bitcoin to an insurance company. And that's where risk ultimately ends up having to be housed. Well, now you can put money into Bitcoin. Now you have deferred all of that risk through the system that, for better or for worse, we've accepted is how the capital markets work. And therefore, Everyone's happy. So that's why you need the Bitcoin ETF instead of just having Bitcoin. Um, but I think, I mean, uh, maybe a very long-winded answer, but it isn't as much of sell as Bitcoin anymore. Um, it's really just a matter of, okay, are we going to overcome the regulatory compliance hurdles that we need for Bitcoin to be embraced from an investment thesis standpoint? That's the ETF. 
and then from a money transmittance standpoint. But I think that is less on the regulatory side as much as it is the tech stack. Uh, because even though we do have Lightning, Lightning's difficult to work with. Uh, I mean, you really got to set up your own node. You got to set up, you don't really be, but you have to set up your own channels, right? People don't necessarily understand how to do that. They'd much rather just go onto their banking app, their N26 on their phone, and they can easily move money around without a question, right? Uh, Lightning's more complex than that. So once we get more uh, friendly user interfaces, then I think you'll start to see the Bitcoin adoption come in from a payments perspective. Hmm. And I think that'll end up happening more in emerging markets than it will in the West. Um, the West, I think, so Europe and the United States, Canada, et cetera, it will continue for the next near decade to view Bitcoin as a largely speculative asset with microtransactions being baked in by the likes of Stripe and uh, Jack Dorsey's new company through Alex and his company at River, et cetera, right? But largely speaking, this is going to be adopted in emerging markets because the real tangible fundamental value drivers of Bitcoin as that inflation heads, as that censorship resistant money, as something that doesn't inflate itself into oblivion, it speaks more to these people there. It, 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 it provides more value there. So you're already seeing that happen. Um, that's going to happen more pronounced in emerging markets, Africa, Latin America, Southeast Asia over the course of the next five years. And then maybe after that, because we haven't hit mass, mass pain yet in the economy in the West yet. We have not. And I know people are really struggling to make ends meet right now. And it's just an unfortunate reality of policy decisions are powers that be have made. Um, but the reality is, is we have not hit max pain. Um, and I don't... It, People only adopt something when there's a sense of urgency, and urgency only happens when you hit max pain. And even if you hit max pain, like look towards Argentina, because I love that on Bitcoin Twitter, it's like, oh, you know, Bitcoin fixed Argentina. Yeah. And you kind of go like, yeah, if you've actually been there, it doesn't. Like they still fucking want the US dollar in form of stable coins and well, shit. Exactly. They but they understand more. the possibilities, right? Exactly. So this is where like, okay, if you are, I mean, if you're in Argentina and you're getting what? 99% inflation. I think Argentina just hiked their central bank interest rates or their target interest rate to like 118% or some nonsense like that. Uh, like if you're living in that type of a world, I mean, you have to have Tether. You have to have USDT. Mm -hmm. You have to mm -hmm. have USDC because that, I mean, okay, the US dollar is inflating itself five, 6% allegedly right now. We know the number is at least two or three times higher than that. Um, probably even more if we're being completely honest, but okay, fine. If we agree CPI says 5 or 6%, uh, these people have interest rates of 118. Of course, you're going to want mm. Tether, even if that comes with a counterparty risk of Tether maybe not being backed, which I can't believe that's actually still a conversation now, but is what it is, right? Um, you trust that significantly more than you trust your local currency. I mean, when I was in uh, Colombia earlier this year, uh, my wife and I went just for a quick uh, vacation to uh, Cartagena. And while we were there, there were local marketplaces set up that were using Bitcoin to a certain extent, but everyone was using Tether, buying and transacting. I mean, just purchasing bottles of water with Tether because it's that cheap, efficient to do it. And the opportunity cost of doing it in the Bolivar, the local currency, because of its inflation. And Colombia doesn't even have outrageous inflation like uh, Venezuela, its neighbor, or Argentina. It's high. It's double digit, but it's nowhere near the extent mm. of these other more distressed economies. But even then, 10% a year compounded 
three years from now, okay, you're talking of 30, 40% value loss, right? Near 40% mm -hmm. value loss. It's horrifying when you think about it. Most definitely. And I think also what a lot of Bitcoiners miss, uh, maybe to bring this back into asset management as well, yeah. is, yeah, you got like the Larry Fings in the world. You get the Jamie Diamonds in the world, um, who I'm still convinced he's secretly a Bitcoiner, but he he's is. just a dick. He likes to be a dick publicly. So like he's a big guy and the big shot. Um, but you still have people working in like subdivisions and different teams and shit, and they get what we mean. So it's not like the bankers per se are the bad guys or like the Wall Street guys, but it's just like top level management that sometimes has issues with agreeing to certain things. Um, and a lot of that's around the risk mitigation. Um, the, the point that I was making earlier, a yeah. lot of it's just, uh, so A, a lot of it is that they're just old heads. They have their ways of viewing how the world works. I mean, I think like... Yeah. What by the time that we're like thirty or thirty-five, psychologically, our worldview just fundamentally doesn't change much as you age. Like your worldview goes through a roller coaster uh, from the time that you're a kid. Obviously, you can't even really inform an opinion when you're a kid. Um, mm. But then you get to, to high school and college, and your worldview changes based on your peers, based on what school you go to, and you're molded and you're formed and you're shaped into who you inevitably are. Like, that doesn't change after 30 or 35. Um, you're largely the same person. Yeah. And if you profited off like the fiat system, if you want to call it that way, are you really like going to turn your back one day to the other? Like, of course you're not, right? So yeah. sometimes I read these silly tweets. So if you go to conferences, I was just in one in Austria um, last week. And we also hear stuff like, um, I don't know. Uh, bankers still want to put bananas on the blockchain. I was like, well, I actually have a few clients of mine who are like venture capital guys who invest into these kind of projects and they're definitely not looking at it. They're just looking at ways of trying to fit in a old rotten system oh, yeah. into something new, which is probably the hardest thing to do, right? So in terms of the work you do, where does Samara come in? What do you guys do? And what's sort of the big picture vision of how you potentially want to help the Bitcoin ecosystem and beyond that. Right. So, I mean, Samara was founded in uh, 2018. I believe it was January 2018 by uh, German entrepreneur and billionaire Christian Angemeyer and Mike Novogratz, who I assume I don't have to tell anyone on your channel who that guy is. Um, so the idea at the time was basically to create a European merchant bank for all things crypto, very similar to like what Galaxy basically already is stateside, uh, but doing it in Malta because you probably remember back then, Malta was really at the forefront of trying to push uh, crypto banking legislation that would make it very favorable from a European banking environment. And basically, they did that until the Chinese exchanges, well, played their Chinese exchange games and the ECB started to look at Malta and said, what the fuck are you idiots doing? And they basically killed the whole thing. Um, so anyways, what ended up happening is... I mean, Cryptology Asset Group, uh, it, it brought money in and it never really built out the operation that it necessarily intended to from a merchant banking perspective. It really just became a holding company of a couple of different companies that it had invested in. Now, mind you, I wasn't a part of the organization at that time. Um, Cryptology invested in Block One, uh, pre-EOS ICO. So regardless of how you view EOS as a shitcoin or not. Um, I mean, if you were a shareholder of Block One, you were pretty goddamn happy uh, with how everything turned out there, let's be completely honest. Uh, I mean, at one point, they ended up having, what, more Bitcoin than God. So if you were a shareholder of Block One, you were pretty happy. Um, Amen, sister. <laughs> exactly, right? Uh, 
It also invested in Northern Data, uh, which while Northern Data as a Bitcoin mining group has had a roller coaster over the last couple of years, uh, it is one. it was actually at one point in time the largest private miner of Ethereum until the merge. And it's still one of the largest organized Bitcoin mining groups on Earth today. Uh, so we're still very happy in that investment and we're continuing to invest in Northern Data as it moves forward. Um, on top of that, it invested in my company, Iconic, now Deutsche Digital Assets, as that asset manager and a handful of others. And that's when, so in 2020, uh, what was, let's call it, beginning as a $25, $30 million balance sheet, which was Catrology Asset Group, it goes on to be worth nearly half a billion uh, during the heyday of 2020 Bitcoin craze, right? I mean, Bitcoin goes up to 60, 70,000 almost. The balance sheet just absolutely balloons. So the board at the time decided to take uh, Cryptology Asset Group public in October of 2020. Um, they realized after that that they needed somebody that actually knows how capital markets work to run this. They need to. They need somebody that knows crypto asset management. And I had been running a crypto asset manager that it had already invested in for some time. So it just made perfect sense for me to step in, put on my Elon Musk hat, and run two companies as best as I could for a couple of years. Um, Hair got really gray. That's why I got to keep it nice and short right now. So you can't see how many thousands of gray hairs there are there. But nonetheless, um, we were able to be successful with just about everything there. Now, where cryptology is today, or where uh, actually I should say Samara Asset Group is today relative to where cryptology was before. I mean, I believe post- 3AC, post Celsius, BlockFi, all of the exuberance, and then especially post the bullshit that was FTX. I mean, crypto, the way that it was structured, not from a technology standpoint, not from a vision standpoint of what we want Bitcoin and crypto to be, but from a pure infrastructure standpoint, it had been proven dead. Everything that we trusted and everything that we believed in from an infrastructural standpoint that enabled crypto to work outside of just the tech stack, it had failed entirely. But the one thing that did remain was Bitcoin. Uh, whereas a lot of people started to see the bullshit that was being built on top of Ethereum and DeFi and a lot of the bullshit layer ones like Solana that isn't even a goddamn blockchain. Um, all of this nonsense that's out there, uh, not to say that Ethereum and Solana are nonsense, but obviously what ends up getting built on top of it largely has been Bitcoin remained as the lone gold standard, if you will. So I convinced our board that it would be a better idea to rebrand the company away from cryptology um, because we don't want to be a crypto company anymore. We're, we never really bought or sold or traded in crypto anyway. We invested in companies that were building in the Bitcoin, in the blockchain, in the crypto space regardless. And on top of that, I had the idea that we should be building a new asset manager underneath an already well-established liquid balance sheet, which was Cryptology Asset Group. So this is where uh, it was rather fortuitous. Um, I mean, we were able to bring in a team, bring in a fund complex underneath what was rebranded to Samara Asset Group, and we now call that Samara Alpha. Um, so this is our US-based subsidiary asset management complex. And now, Part of the pivot of the strategy of Cryptology Asset Group into Samara Asset Group is we want to focus on making fund investments. And while we still do ad hoc direct investments into companies as they approach us, and really we only do that if it comes from directly within our network, like for instance, 
Christian is very close with uh, Peter Thiel. He's very close with Alan Howard and a couple of other larger, uh, more noteworthy investors. If they have an interesting deal that they're looking to close out and, hey, we can get 500K or a million into it, we'll jump at the bit to do it. And that's how actually cryptology ended up becoming a shareholder of uh, NYDIG. Um, NYDIG in the US because NYDIG ended up acquiring a company, BottlePay, that we were invited to co-invest in alongside Alan Howard. So we'll do that every once in a while. So hang on a minute. Are you guys the reasoning we can't buy via Lightning anymore in the UK because Bottle Pay closed yeah, down? Yeah, I think so. Uh, so it's not my fault. <laughs> we invested in... <laughs> I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I mean, I love it. Thank you, Peter Thiel. <laughs> no, that was Alan Howard. Um, no, so Nidig bought Bottle Pay and basically tried to integrate... I mean, I love Bottle Pay. Bottle Pay is one of the... It was one of the best startups I've, I ever saw at the time. Um, and Nidig just built it in and made it more institutional, rather where Bottle Pay was a retail focused platform, right? So is what it is. Um, but anyways, now our strategy is we're focusing on making fund investments. And we actually started this about two years ago. We said we were going to be allocating 100 million of our balance sheet into uh, maybe 15 to 20 funds, both liquid managed funds as well as venture funds. Now, We've invested in, I think, seven or eight funds to date um, thus far. I think we've allocated something like 25, 30 million over the last couple of years. Not the 100 million that we were intending, but we noticed that there was a huge problem. Asset managers in crypto bloody fucking suck. Most of them do. That's just the truth of it. I mean, why do we think most of them ended up going belly up whenever 3AC went under? Why did most of them go under when BlockFi and Celsius went under? Everybody was doing the Ponzi grayscale trade. Everybody was getting the immediately harvest returns on GBDT. Everybody was turning around and lending that to each other. And they were all in each other's pockets, generating yield, bringing in more assets that they could use as collateral with one another, and then turning around and... Uh, losing it all because whenever one of them ends up going belly up, sets off margin call. And guess what? It was a zero sum game. There were no actual assets with any of these groups. It was all just theoretical notional value collateralized derivatives on loans that were basically intertwined with each other. So the whole thing falls down. So we actually avoided making most investments in asset managers because we saw through this. I mean, we had an opportunity to invest in 3AC. We had an opportunity to invest uh, even in BlockFi itself. We were invited into a SPAC in BlockFi, and we avoided all of this because if you knew at that time how the back rooms, like we discussed earlier, in crypto worked, it was all just hyper-leveraged, every single thing. Well, so... When we realized, and, and uh, so then fast forward, the whole crypto world blows up. 90% of the funds go under. I mean, the only ones that really stuck around are uh, the index fund and the ETP groups. So like in Europe, CoinShares is there, MyDDA is there, um, 21 shares is there. They're all live and kicking because those are passive products. But the only mm -hmm. active managers that really are still around are Pantera. Uh, I mean, even Sequoia has, and that's a massive VC fund. Sequoia is not really doing much anymore in crypto because they've been reeling from FTX. Um, Andreessen had their $4 billion crypto turnaround fund. They're not doing a goddamn thing. Um, you end up with, God, who else is still there? Uh, Galaxy. Galaxy still manages a fund. Um, so Novo and his guys are doing well. And then you end up with uh, Brevin Howard, right? Outside of that, who are the major crypto funds that are still around anymore? I mean, you have 
Okay, MultiCoin, you have Alameda. <laughs> I was just about to say MultiCoin Capital. <laughs> yeah, there's allegations out against them too. I'm not sure they're going to be around much longer. Yeah. Um, I mean, everybody that was like the OG crypto fund, they're dead uh, or they're dying. So we saw a clear need in the market. We saw an opportunity that us being a balance sheet, I mean, I think our market cap's roughly around like 100, 120 million right now. Um, and that's after paying out a dividend of 75 million earlier this year um, from block one proceeds when we sold out. So we were uh, earlier this year a two, 250 million uh, market cap company. So we have that balance sheet and our team has knowledge and know-how how to eliminate operational and counterparty risk in asset management. And this is the key ingredients that we're missing and what inevitably led to the complete implosion of crypto asset management post FTX, post Celsius, post 3AC. So because we have that team, because we have that background, because we eliminate the organizational risk, the operational risk, and the counterparty risk, because we manage assets the way that a traditional Wall Street group would manage those assets, we mitigate these risks, we felt it would be a great idea that we make our platform available to other managers that we still have to do our due diligence on. We invest in those managers ourselves, but we invite them onto our own platform, basically give them a fund. All they have to do is turn the key, plug in their algorithm. We invest a million or two into their first fund and we help fundraise for them. And we just share economics. We share a part of the management fee and the performance fee based on whatever we negotiate. So we're taking, I mean, it's already the asset class with what I believe is far and away the highest upside from a pure beta perspective. But given the infrastructural deficiencies in crypto, there's also a lot of alpha that can be harvested. So for instance, we have a market neutral fund. It's a market neutral fund to fund on Samara Alpha that we just launched on July 1st. It participates in crypto, but it has zero beta exposure to crypto or near zero beta exposure to crypto. Targeted returns of, I think, 20, 25% per annum, and it's doing it solely by harvesting alpha given the structural inefficiencies in crypto. And they, they exist, and they're going to exist forever as long as there is regulatory arbitrage that can be had. So, can, can you maybe quickly ex explain the difference between alpha and, and um, all of that stuff for the listeners? Not so, with it. It, just investing in Bitcoin is, these are Greek symbols that we use to define types of returns on investments. So alpha is just pure, I don't even know how to describe alpha. Alpha is riskless returns to a certain extent, if we want to call it that, right? It is guaranteed, not guaranteed returns, nothing's guaranteed, but it is returns that are generated based on fundamental underlyings that are not tied to market pricing, right? Uh, arbitrage is a good example of an alpha. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a guaranteed mismatch of price because of infrastructural deficiency. And there's other sources of alpha, but that's largely what we focus on. Uh, beta is just putting money on Bitcoin and letting it go forever. Beta just follows it. And then somebody infinitely smarter than I will have to tell you what the other ones are, because honestly, I don't know them. I know there is delta returns. Couldn't tell you what the hell a delta return is off the top of my head. Um, <laughs> maybe your miles with Delta Airline. I don't know. <laughs> ah, maybe. I don't, I don't fly Delta, though. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <same>. um, <laughs> no, so anyway. kicked out uh, a few times. Yeah, so we offer them that fund and we invest in those funds. So this is where if you're a Samara Asset Group, or rather if you're a shareholder of Samara Asset Group, these are funds that, at least from a retail perspective, your regulators are effectively either telling you you're too poor or you're too stupid 
to understand the risks of investing in these types of funds. These are accredited and qualified investor laws. And while, okay, we can debate until we're blue in the face the merits of qualified investor laws, nonetheless, retail investors are largely not allowed to participate in venture funds and uh, hedge funds. It's just the truth of it. However, if you are a shareholder of Samara Asset Group, you have indirect exposure to the performance of the funds that we are investing in. And that are, those are the venture capital and these hedge funds. But not only that, you're getting indirect exposure to the performance of the growth of the Samara Alpha platform. As we continue to harvest managers, as we continue to fundraise for those managers, and as we deploy our own assets into those managers, as long as we do our jobs well, and I hope our shareholders trust us to do so, there should be... Um, and, and I mean, I can't say there's an expectation of returns, but our shareholders do get the opportunity to participate in the performance of the strategies we invest in, as well as uh, the growth of the Samara Alpha platform. And I'm hoping that it will be so not we, an absolute so home you've run. You've got your, your fingers on the pulse, really, of all the sort of Bitcoin, the, the component parts of the Bitcoin ecosystem and all the sort of um, companies that are trying to develop some sort of Bitcoin um, or contribute in some way to the Bitcoin ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And I think I think sometimes we get lost in the particular Bitcoin Twitter and we're talking about maxis and things like that. There's just buy Bitcoin, buy Bitcoin, buy Bitcoin. But there's the, the conversation that still needs to be had. What, what about all of the, the, the companies that are trying to raise funds in order to actually contribute and, and build upon uh, the base layer? So that's the second side of what it is that we do. Uh, because obviously that's more on the asset management side. And that's the new Samara Asset Group asset management platform that we're actively building out. But we are still very much a... I mean, formerly crypto, um, and I've been able to convince our board, Bitcoin Native Investment Group, uh, Northern Data being one of the largest uh, Bitcoin mining groups on earth, we're heavily invested there. And we take an active role in working with management to ensure that they're meeting their targets and their goals. Um, with DDA, uh, obviously, I was the founder and the former CEO of DDA. We're helping to work, expand Bitcoin access to investors via the Bitcoin ETP, because some people prefer an ETP or what would be in the US an ETF relative to holding Bitcoin on their own. And we still do see time and time again, uh, Bitcoin native companies that we would like to be deploying to, that we would like to be investing in. And one of the things that we're actively working on doing is enhancing our understanding of the Lightning community, because I believe Lightning is more or less become the de facto scaling solution that we're starting to see real applications being built around. Um, I mean, for me, at least for the last couple of years, I mean, the Lightning White Paper was published in what, 2015, 2016? I believe it was 2015, right? And for about four or five years, you had heard about this Lightning community, you had heard about the developers. And I mean, I'm not a developer myself, so I don't even really know these people outside of a few offhand introductions that have been made to me. Um, but it was always like a, for me, uh, I'll believe it when I see it sort of thing. I'll finally believe they have mm -hmm. something that scales Bitcoin when I see it. I mean, lo and behold, Lightning has been killing it for the last three or four years, yeah. right? Uh, we're, we're seeing the payment channels come through. Um, I think there's what, three, 4,000 uh, Bitcoin TVL locked into Lightning payment channels right now. Uh, and it's growing on a day-to-day -day basis. Is this exponential growth? No, but I actually really respect the more restrained organic growth model that the Lightning community has embraced. And it looks as though now that that, I mean, 
So I like to think about lightning like this. I mean, if you're building, say you're building a new skyscraper, right? What takes the longest? What, 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 if you're building a skyscraper, it's going to take you two years to build it. What takes the longest to build the skyscraper? What, which part of the skyscraper takes the longest? The foundation. Exactly. It takes you a year, a year and a half just to build the damn foundation. And then adding all the layers on top, that happens mm -hmm. in a, a couple of months. I mean, you see those little Chinese buggers. They don't even bother laying a foundation anymore. They just build <laughs> the whole thing up from the bottom anyway. Um, so... It, Lightning laid an amazing foundation upon which other people, other community members can now build. And it's wonderful to see happening. And we're looking at many investments in that space. Also, I mean, one of the things that bugs me, and it's just the nature of the beast with Bitcoin. I mean, there is no foundation behind Bitcoin. And I know there's Bitcoin.org and there is a Bitcoin foundation. And there are a couple of other non-for-profits in and around it, but there is no centralized entity like the Ethereum Foundation or the Solana Foundation that has an aggregated pool of assets that are deploying to developers within that ecosystem. That is, I mean, it, okay, we can debate until we're blue in the face. Um, okay, it's a pre-mine, it's fake money, blah, blah, blah. Regardless, it's a huge value add for that ecosystem. Uh, because it attracts developers because developers go where capital is. Bitcoin doesn't have that outside of the goodness of people's hearts to invest in core Bitcoin developers. So when I had the very fortuitous opportunity to meet uh, Mike Schmidt of the Brink Foundation hmm. earlier this year, uh, Mike runs a non-for-profit charitable organization that finances uh, core Bitcoin developers. So a core Bitcoin developer's salary through the Brink Foundation is about 150K a year. So we committed ourselves for three years. We will finance a Bitcoin developer. Um, so that's just one of the ways that we're contributing, I hope, in a meaningful way to the Bitcoin community um, just by helping to, yeah, have developers incentivized to continue to building and making Bitcoin more secure over time. Um Bitcoin education is also something that I think is most important, and not just from an institutional perspective. That's my goddamn day job dealing with regulators and lawyers and large, uh, richer people than I am. Um, but having education boots on the ground in Africa, Latin America, Southeast Asia, where Bitcoin is going to make the biggest impact and financing those efforts I think is unbelievably important. So that's why, I mean, even on my own podcast, uh, Proof of Words, I had the pleasure of having uh, a woman on named Lorraine. Uh, she runs a uh, charitable organization that actually Alex Gladstein's um, Human Rights Foundation gave a 10K uh, donation to a few months ago. Uh, it's called Bitcoin Data, and she focuses on Bitcoin education for women in Kenya, which is astounding. Um, because, I mean, one of the things that I learned on the podcast with her is that in a lot of traditional, more, a lot, in a lot of traditionalist African uh, families, a wife is not allowed to open a bank account. A woman is not allowed to open a bank account without her husband or her father's permission, which coming from a Western perspective is just astounding. Like you've, you've got to be out of your goddamn minds if that's how that society works, right? But that's how it works there. So if we can empower her to reach these women, and we're not just talking banking the unbanked right now, we're talking these people can be banked, but are being refused by their society, by their culture to be banked. But hey, we can help them with Bitcoin and they can become a bank themselves. We can help them with Tether. They can have stable coins themselves. 
I mean, that's life changing for a lot of those women. Mm. So we announced and made the donation, I think maybe a week or two ago, that we were going to be matching um, the Human Rights Foundation's uh, 10K in Bitcoin donation to Bitcoin data uh, because I fell in love with Lorraine and I fell in love with her efforts. So that's just another one of the ways that we're trying to give back uh, to the Bitcoin community. Um, I mean, the Bitcoin community has been great to us. Samara has made a very good chunk of money off of its investments in and around the Bitcoin community. It's frankly the least that we can do to give back in meaningful ways. And it kind of also fits in with what you said earlier, that you're a hardcore libertarian. And I mean, one of the core principles is let the free market decide, right? Yeah. And instead of trying to force different stuff like shitty regulation, you know, corruption and bet with regulators and, and specific companies, why not let's just invest some money into these companies or these projects and actually let the market decide if they survive, which frankly, if you invest this way, I bet there's more likelihood that they are going to survive and strive instead of, you know, sitting there and hoping that my, I don't know, pre-sale ICO token is pumping enough that I can get out in time <laughs> and uh, forget about everything else. Yeah, right? You got to make sure you front run the rug pool on Uniswap, right? Um yeah, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I wish I could say what I was faking now, but <laughs> fuck, I would break a big NDA now. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to risk that. <laughs> nah, no, no, let's not get in trouble here, right? No, so like I, I mean, investing in projects that are, so I think of like a perfect example is, okay, if you, what do you invest in? Do you invest in gold or do you invest in the guys that are selling shovels during a gold rush? Which is the better investment? Hmm. Well, probably obviously the shovels. the shovels, right? Because if you're financing, if you're investing in gold, but you know there are a significant amount of people that are mining that gold, that are buying shovels to unearth that gold, well, guess what? Gold's inflated. Theoretically, the value of it goes down. You're relying purely on demand pool to appreciate the value of gold. And don't get me wrong. I love gold. I think Bitcoin and gold sort of harmoniously exist together. I don't want to... I mean, I'm not one of those Bitcoiners that goes out there and poo-poo's gold. I think there's immense value in gold. Um, but hey, I'd rather be investing in the shovels and that are mining or that are unearthing mm -hmm. the gold. Um, I mean, I had a podcast a few years ago, and I forget the gentleman's name, but he runs a uh, he ran a commodity investment group out of Colorado. I think it was called Crescent Capital. He's you'd have to go and look up his name. He's one of the foremost uh, commodities investors on earth, and. What he had told me during that podcast is that a lot of what he does is not just help investors find commodities that they can invest in, whether it be uh, gold, crude, whatever, um, but also investing in the mines, that the inevitable escalation of wanting to be a commodities investor is you don't just invest in the commodity itself. You inevitably are deploying more to the mines themselves, the harvesting of that commodity. That's where the more, more of the money is. Well, that's how I view Bitcoin infrastructure, particularly Bitcoin mining. If I want to be investing in uh, Bitcoin, sure. And we have Bitcoin on our balance sheet. Um, so we mm -hmm. store, we hold it. I'm hodling it like crazy. We'll probably never sell it. I hope we never have to. Um, but we want to be investing in uh, miners. We want to be investing in exchanges. We want to be investing in asset managers. We want to be investing in the groups that are helping Bitcoin go to its next evolutionary cycle. Like, for instance, one of our investments right now, Topple, um, 
Topple years ago was trying to build its own layer one solution. And they built themselves out in such a framework that it's UTXO based that they realized, okay, it's probably a better idea that we use this as a layer two on top of Bitcoin. We're not an account based system like Ethereum. Let's try to become that layer two. So they've pivoted this year away from building their own layer one blockchain towards now offering the functionality that more modern layer ones like Ethereum and others have on top of Bitcoin. And what's exciting about them is they're actually plugging Lightning in. So if you have Bitcoin and Lightning all working together and you have functionality around it, well, that's one of the things that can enable DeFi, NFTs. I mean, sure, we have ordinals, but hey, very uh, inefficient to work with ordinals, right? Um, we, We can now offer that functionality and bring tokenization on top of Bitcoin. And there's half a dozen groups, maybe more out there that are now trying to build that. That's what I want to be invested in. I mean, of course, I want to be invested in Bitcoin. But if you look at what the infrastructure is, I mean, I think of it as leveraged Bitcoin, uh, because if you consider the cost of capital to finance that operation relative to just investing that money in Bitcoin itself, theoretically, as long as it performs and the team executes its mandates for, uh, for building out whatever it is that they're working on, it should outperform Bitcoin in bull cycles and then granted underperform in bear cycles but that's the nature of leverage right yeah and i think sometimes we get kind of um I've, maybe there's um the narrative of that because bitcoin is so finite and we need to get as much as we can while we're still early and then so people then just sort of like put all of their bags onto the the asset itself rather than the actual infrastructure so you've really opened my mind now to how to think more meta more sort of how how I can smartly invest to help build up the product that I believe in ultimately. That's that's a fascinating um, way forward, and I'm going to go away and think about that somewhat. But we're winding up. Um, we're coming up to time now for the rest of the episode. And, oh, come on. We were just um, starting to have fun. I know. I'd day. love to. Um, I'd love to, but I, I feel the tapping toe of my, uh, tapping feet of my wife downstairs <laughs> with her arms crossed thinking you're, you're late for dinner. So I need to, I need so to. This is why you just got to uh, jump to a different continent because I don't have to worry. <laughs> yeah. I don't have to worry about that with my wife tonight. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. That's well, I'm coming to Amsterdam soon. So, uh, maybe, maybe I can ah, uh, spread my wings somewhat when I'm out there, you see. So, but, Are you um, bro, we still share a room. Like don't spread your wings too wide. Well, you well know, are you yeah, going to, to Bitcoin toe, Amsterdam? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah we're going. Are you going? Uh, so I unfortunately will not be, but the Samara Alpha team uh, will be there. Um, I don't know if you guys saw this, oh, but wow. we have the um, – so, I mean, I know Mike um, who runs Bitcoin Magazine, the guy that runs Bitcoin Miami, Bitcoin, yeah, yeah. I guess, Amsterdam, and they're doing Bitcoin mm, Nashville mm. next year, which, I mean, I'm kind of looking forward to that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's um, right. So him and I got together one morning. And I was like, look, we're going full in on Bitcoin. I want to do something together. What can we do? Uh, So about eight or nine uh, mimosas on a Thursday morning later, uh, him and I came up with the idea of what we call (laughs) best ideas. uh, uh, Best ideas always happen with drinking. That's why I'm so upset that I gave it up this (laughs) month. Um, So we decided to call it Bitcoin Alpha. Because we want to source managers. We want to find those managers and bring them to our platform. So we said, hey, why don't we do this like a Shark Tank thing? We send out a query, you distribute it because you have the bandwidth, and any manager out there that is definitively managing an asset uh, that they believe that they can beat Bitcoin, they should pitch to Samara Alpha. And we actually received like almost 30 applications of actual fund managers that 
I mean, they're managing these assets and we're going to select three of them and we're going to put them on stage at Bitcoin Amsterdam. Uh, and then a panel of judges, which is going to be the Samara Alpha team, they're going to run them through the gambit. They're going to present their strategy and we're going to pick a winner and put a million into a new fund for the winner. And that's going to be the first fund on our platform. And we're going to do that every oh, wow. year um, at uh, the Bitcoin conference. Really cool. So I'm real excited about that. No, we'll make sure we definitely... Um watch that one Joel. that'd be uh that'd be brilliant now you're gonna have and, to catch uh, it we'll, it looks we'll like be sure be to say yeah we'll be sure to say um hello to the team as well um at the end of each of our episodes we do the all roads lead back to bitcoin challenge and what that really means is that we want to try and prove the theory that all roads in fact do lead back to bitcoin okay. so we give each of our guests a word and or phrase to um try and relate that back to bitcoin somehow so um Joel and i have come up with the word eco warrior how does eco warrior relate back to bitcoin oh god um <laughs> and you've got some um thinking time if you need eco it, warriors course. promote esg esg is a fucking communist scam and they're trying to portray it <laughs> and the esg narrative is trying to portray bitcoin as being unfriendly for the environment therefore not esg compliant whereas i view bitcoin as being the number one if you believe in esg sort of thing fine go for it mm -hmm. libertarian your choice. Uh, imposing that will on others, no fucking go. Again, live and let live. But I believe Bitcoin will do more for the environment. I believe Bitcoin will do more for society. I believe Bitcoin will do more in promoting governance, uh, responsible governance models than any fucking politician or eco-warrior ever will. Um, I believe Bitcoin is the most ESG compliant, ESG friendly investment on earth and will do more for sustainable, renewable energy production through private capital markets than any politician ever will or any eco warrior ever will. So there you go, guys. See, so far, <laughs> all rose back to Bitcoin. Patrick, it's been brilliant talking to you um it's been a fascinating episode for me personally so thank you you are now a friend of the show and you're welcome back anytime to continue this conversation i hope you do because it's um something i definitely want to dive back into with you so joel anything you want to say before we end just the best place to find you online, Patrick, I guess, is Twitter or maybe LinkedIn if people want to get serious. Uh, I mean, yeah, I have. Uh, so best to find me on Twitter. Um, I actually manage my own Twitter just because I have fun with it. Um, the team manages LinkedIn for me because, God help me, I fucking hate LinkedIn. <laughs> I, I really just do. I told my guys, like, look, I, I, social media, I get it. We have to promote Samara. I have to promote myself personally. Yeah. I'll do the Twitter. You guys copy and paste the Twitter and you do the LinkedIn because I'm not bothering with that shit. Um, <laughs> but no, so you can also find me um, I mean, at samara-ag.com uh, if you want to look up Samara. Um, unfortunately, uh, we can only admit European investors for because uh, we're publicly listed there. So sorry for you American or Brit investors. Uh, not going to be able to access our shares. Um, and also, I have my own podcast, Proof of Words. Um, so proofofwords.io, uh, we put out weekly content. You're welcome to find me there if you enjoyed listening to my nonsense on this. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. We'll make sure to link everything in the show notes. Um, and also from my end, thanks very much for coming on. Uh, I wish Ian had more time. Maybe, you know, next time we well, can fit it in. Why don't we do a follow-up around Bitcoin yeah, Amsterdam? Exactly. That'll be a good time. That's, that. that's that the spirit. Like that's the, the spirit. And um, yeah, I wish you the very best in uh, New York and uh, we'll talk soon again. Uh, fantastic. Thanks for having me, guys. <laughs>